For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, here we are, Doyle Community Church, CT Video Teaching. We've actually been studying through the book of James on Thursday nights down in our college central teaching. And it's hard to believe it was only a little over two weeks ago that we were studying James chapter 4, where James was saying, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city, and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. And James says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. And I'm not sure there's ever been a two-week stretch in our history where that's been more true, that you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. And we've seen some unexpected things unfold, and yet even as our world is in a time of change where it seems like every day is completely different than the previous day, God's Word provides the unshakable foundation. He is our rock, He is our fortress, and we turn to His Word tonight to study the next passage in the book of James, chapter 5. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that You're not surprised by any of this. We're thankful that You know the future, God. We thank, we thank You, God, that You can be right here beside us, even in the midst of times where we're confused, knowing that You're not, Lord, that we can draw near to You. Thank You that You provide comfort in a time of need. Lord, we pray tonight as we, we look at James chapter 5, we pray that You will open the eyes of our heart and that You will speak to us through Your Word about wealth and poverty. Amen. We live in the United States. And this is a country with an unbelievable amount of wealth. According to the IMF, our economy is a $21.4 trillion per year machine. The U.S. has had the largest economy in the world every year since 1871. That means we're coming up on our 150th year in a row of having the largest economy. And the next closest country isn't even close. We're at $21.4 trillion. China is at 14.1 trillion. And you've got to drop even further to get to third place, Japan, at 5.1 trillion. And so even though we're more than quadruple the third place economy in the world, you would think, you would think that opportunities would abound in this kind of environment. And that, that is true. It's true and it's not true because a closer look shows that the wealth is not distributed evenly. The people in the top 10% of the population control almost two-thirds of the assets in our country. If you drill a little deeper, the people in the top 1% control almost one-third of the assets in our country. And then if you scale back, if you zoom out a bit, and you look at the world as a whole, you'll see perhaps an even greater wealth inequality. The rest of the world has a level of poverty we can't even imagine here especially if you've never been to the poorer parts of other countries. In Ron Sider's classic book on this topic, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, he tries to describe this discrepancy. His first chapter is called A Billion Hungry Neighbors. And I just wanted to read from you one short excerpt from this book because it's very difficult for us to wrap our minds around. He tells of a poor Filipino family, perhaps uh, one such as this one. although these are probably even wealthier than the one that he's interviewing. He says, The Alarans are a poor Filipino family. 
Mr. Alarin makes 70 cents on good days as an ice vendor. Several nights a month, Mrs. Alarin stays up all night to make a coconut sweet that she sells on the street. Total income for her midnight toil, 40 cents. Cooking utensils are her only furniture. The family had not tasted meat for a month when the president of World Vision visited them and wrote this account. He writes, tears washed her dark, sunken eye sockets as she spoke. She said, I feel so sad when my children cry at night because they have no food. I know my life will never change. What can I do to solve my problems? I am so worried about the future of my children. I want them to go to school, but how can we afford it? I'm sick most of the time, but I can't go to the doctor because each visit costs two pesos, which is 28 cents, and the medicine is extra. What can I do? She broke into quiet sobbing, and I admit without shame that I wept with her. The tears and agony of the poor are captured in the words of Mrs. O'Laren. World poverty is a hundred million mothers like Mrs. O'Laren weeping because they cannot feed their children. Do you know what it's like to not be able to feed your children? Do you know what it's like to have hopelessness of the poor in the truly destitute portions of the world? Do you know what it's like to be sick all the time and not be able to afford the simple medicine that would cost so little in our dollars that could make you well? We can't relate to this. We don't know this feeling because even we don't have poverty like this. And of course, as Ron Sider also points out, 2% of the world's grain harvest would be enough if shared to erase the problem of hunger and malnutrition in the world. He's citing an Oxford economist, Donald Hay. And when James writes his epistle, he's not talking to this wealthy 1% or 10% or even the poor of America. James is writing by and large to families whose impoverished situation more closely remember, resembles that of the Alarans. You can see where James's people were having problems with their faith under this kind of grueling poverty. They were wilting under the pressure of the suffering in their lives. You can see why they'd be tempted to kiss up to the rich man who finally visited their meeting in James chapter 2. But tonight, in chapter 5, he's not writing directly to the poor anymore. No, he turns and addresses, in the style of the Old Testament prophets, a group of rich men who weren't even present, probably, for the reading of this letter. He's addressing the rich. James writes this. He says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Some people think James is writing to rich Christians in this community. I don't think so. I think he's writing to non-Christians who are rich and who aren't even present. Why non-Christians who aren't present? He speaks about them in the third person. He never calls them brothers like he does in the rest of his letter. He never directly calls on them to change their ways, and he warns them that they're going to hell, which simply couldn't be true of Christians because Scripture says that Christians are guaranteed that they're going to heaven. Now, why is James doing this? Well, James is a book that's heavily steeped in the Old Testament, and you see this in the Old Testament prophets. You see them turn and address judgment upon audiences that aren't even present, like Obadiah 1-2, where the prophet Obadiah writes, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, which was a country perhaps 100 miles to the east of where Obadiah was writing. Jesus even talks like this. He turns in Matthew eleven twenty one and says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you! And he names a bunch of other cities as well, people who weren't present. He's denouncing them for not listening to the miracles 
and the word of God that was preached to them. So why would they do this sort of thing? Why would they speak to an audience who isn't even there? Well, there's several reasons. One is because what they're saying would often get back to the people they were talking about. Oh, did you hear what James said about you guys? It's because God's word has a power to it, that it will not return void without accomplishing its purpose. It's because when the prediction does happen, people will know this was spoken by God, and they'll listen to the rest of the message as well. They'll know it was from him. It also brings comfort to the oppressed listeners. You know, when you read a powerful article, a powerful book, a blog entry, criticizing some injustice, there's there's a sense of satisfaction that you get from that. His listeners would have been comforted by this, knowing that God sees, that God cares, that God will one day act, and he's standing right at the door. The the action is so soon. And the people would simply understand the heart of God better, and they would learn how to live. And so even though here, you know, some of us, we may not be on the poorer end of the spectrum. Some of us might be. We might be believers or not, but we can learn something from what God has to say to these rich here in this passage. And you know, you read a verse like this, come now you rich, weep and howl for miseries which are coming upon you. It's it's easy to think that rich is always bad and poor is always good, right? Otherwise, why are they weeping and howling for the miseries? But it's more complex than that. I think it's helpful to think in different terms. You know, we tend to think in simplistic terms. You've got the rich and the poor. But when we say that, usually what we mean is the financially rich and the financially poor. And what the Bible does is it draws a line horizontally to divide things into four quadrants, where you have the spiritually rich and the spiritually poor. And so you can really fall into one of these four quadrants. Let's talk about these. You know, the first group would be people who are poor in this world, but are spiritually rich. We see a lot of these kind of people in Scripture. This is the majority of James's audience. This would be the household that James grew up in, the house of a carpenter with at least six or seven kids. His brother, his half-brother Jesus Christ, would have grown up financially poor, spiritually rich. You know, Jesus, when he called his disciples, many of them came from poorer backgrounds. Even the ones from wealthier backgrounds, like Paul, lost it all in following Christ and did not have any regrets at all about it because he found true riches. And, you know, this was sort of shocking to the original audience. You know, they thought wealth was a marker that God's blessing was upon you, that it was an indicator of how spiritual you are. But in fact, Jesus pronounced, blessed are the poor, and his audience, this was so out of their frame of reference, it was hard to even know what he was talking about. There's another group that is both spiritually rich and financially rich spiritually and financially rich. There's a lot of these in Scripture, too. You look at the Old Testament, Abraham, very wealthy. Joseph, wealthy. Job, wealthy. And then he wasn't, and then he was again. Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament had the privilege of burying Jesus in his own brand new tomb. That would have cost a lot of money. Barnabas, we see him selling his property in Acts chapter 4 and donating it to the poor Christians. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, it says in Luke 8, 3, was part of a group of wealthy women that not only followed Jesus around, but financially supported his ministry. They made possible a lot of the things that he was able to do through their financial support. Thank God he had these people in his life. Some of these men and women did a lot for the kingdom of God. And 
you know, when God addresses the rich, sometimes he addresses them like James does. Sometimes he addresses them like Paul does. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, he says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good and be rich in good works and generous to those in need and always ready to share with others. By doing this, they'll be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Yes, in our church, we have many spiritual, wealthy Christians who have done so much to advance the work of God, and we thank God for them. You know, Paul doesn't say, weep, weep and wail to this group. No, he says, don't trust in your money. God gives us everything you need for your enjoyment. But what it does speak to is the spiritual dangers of wealth. You know, 1 Timothy 6 also says that seeking to get rich is a sin. We also learn in the Bible that wealth brings many challenges to their spiritual lives, like the prayer from Proverbs 30, where he writes, Give me neither poverty nor riches. And what's the problem, he says, with riches? I might be tempted to say, Who is the Lord? God who? Wealth lulls us into trusting in our wealth can take the edge off of radical living for God. As Halsby writes, without a doubt, many a Christian has lost his spiritual life in the sunny but dry era of prosperity. Only a few can weather prosperity and be none the worse for it. Or, in the words of Jesus, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. This group here doesn't come up in this passage. They don't come up in this passage. I don't think James's communities had a lot of this kind of people left anymore. There's a third group, a group that would be poor financially and poor spiritually. Spiritually, they're just as bad off as the rich person who's poor spiritually. Yeah, just because you're poor doesn't mean you're spiritual or blessed by God. Sometimes you're poor because of sinful choices, bad choices, evil choices. There's a lot of reasons for poverty that we don't have time to get into tonight. But Proverbs talks about a lot of them. Proverbs 23, 21, drunkards and gluttons become poor. Yes, addiction can be the fast track to the poorhouse. Where you need that hit, you need that drink so bad, you'll spend anything to get it, and it doesn't matter what. Proverbs talks about overspending. 21, 17, those who love pleasure become poor. You know, as a famous poet once wrote, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. This is the American way. This is you shopping online, overspending, and you didn't even realize you spent it, and now it's gone. There's laziness, Proverbs 24, 30. He talks about, I walked by the field of this lazy person. The thing was a mess. What a disaster. This guy's on the fast track to the poorhouse. Divorce is a great way to become poor. Such a financial hit. One of our Trinity professors was here once talking about counseling. And he, he was counseling this couple once. The guy would not listen. Finally, he said, can I show you the finances of divorce, how much money you're going to lose? He walked the guy through the finances. All of a sudden, the man was very motivated to work on his marriage, save the marriage. <laughs> Foolish loans, investments, get-rich-quick schemes, loaning money to friends, Proverbs 21, 5, 22, 26. These are all ways we just don't have time to talk about tonight. But let's not just think the poor are spiritual. Not at all. Not necessarily. Part of it is they're often born into broken families that leave them hopeless. They join the cycle of poverty. There's 
pain in the life of the poor person that makes the short-term temptation very, temp- very ap- appealing. There are desperate measures that might relieve pain temporarily, but in the long run, just dig the hole even deeper. But this group isn't mentioned here either, the financially and spiritually poor. But there is a fourth group, a group that is rich in this world, but spiritually poor. And that group does come up here in this passage. Yes, these are the two groups that come up in this passage. And there's plenty of these in Scripture as well. The Pharisees would be exhibit A. Jesus was always tangling with these guys wealthy, and they thought their wealth was a sign of God's blessing. And Jesus came after these guys. He said, no, no, no. There's the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and ended up walking away sad. And Jesus was sad for him because he loved his money more than following Christ. God is repeatedly confronting the wicked rich in the Old Testament and in the New. And now God has an unpleasant message for these rich here in James's audience. He details four miseries, four miseries that are already coming upon them. Let's see what God has to say through James to the rich who are ignoring God. The first thing he says, the first misery is that hoarding riches has led to rotting riches. Your riches, James says, have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. James just tells it like it is. And like so many times in this book, James is simply echoing the teachings of his half-brother, Jesus Christ. Matthew 6, 19-20, the Sermon on the Mount, he's quoting it again. Jesus said, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them, moth-eaten, and rust destroys them. There's the rust. And where thieves break in and steal, store your treasures in heaven, Jesus says, where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus says, I've got an alternative investment opportunity for you. Yeah, clothing. Back then, clothing was a sign of wealth. The poor often had only one garment. It was threadbare. The rich had many garments, brightly colored. He talked about this in James chapter 2 already, the clothing of the rich. But think about how wrong that is. The rich have multiple coats. The poor have no coat, and they're freezing to death. The rich man's surplus, even giving away a portion of that, could fill the entire deficit for the poor man. And then, because the rich, they weren't using their extra coats, they would just rot. The, the moths would get in and they would eat them up. And so nobody got to use it. While human beings made in the image of God froze to death. How wrong is that? That garment would have lasted longer if it had been used the right way. And what God is saying is that our money can last longer and even forever if it is used in the right way. Jesus said we can lay up treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy. And James says, you've done this, you've done this, and it will be a witness against you. It will be a witness against you. What is he talking about? He's talking about the last days. The rich had stored up worldly goods as though this life were all that there is. And yet this life is not all that there is. Didn't they realize their time would run out? Yeah, there's a deadline coming. There's the obvious deadline where your riches will expire. And after your death, you cannot use your wealth on yourself anymore. There's the old story, the rich man passes away, 
And the reporter asks the lawyer, how much did he leave behind? Well, all of it, said the lawyer. We're all going to leave behind all of it. But there's another deadline. There's a day when Christ will return, where even if you haven't reached your death yet, all earthly bank accounts will reset to zero, and only what's been stored up in heaven will last. Even the riches you've left to your, your children and their children, if they're not foolish enough to lose it, it will be lost on the day Christ returns. And even now, our riches rot away. There's inflation. There's natural disasters. There's wear and tear and theft and rust, or even turn on the news and see how the events of the past few days have shown us the transience of wealth and how disappointing it can be for those who have put their hope in it. Pictures from Wall, you look at pictures from Wall Street. The Dow Jones Index has fallen over 25% in the past week over 30% in the past month as we sit here on Tuesday evening, St. Patrick's Day. These people are terrified. They're losing their wealth. They're losing their retirement. And God says, you could have spent that money on something that would last. And now your riches are rotting away and your wealth will be a witness against you. Yes, their wealth will be a witness against them in that day. It will be a witness against them. You know, it's ironic because the rich... The wealthy were the ones who would use the court system to their advantage to take away what little the poor person had left. But one day they'll stand in a different court with a different judge. And this is not what the rich want to hear. They're used to their wealth getting them out of trouble, but now not only will the wealth fail to rescue them, it will be exhibit A. It will be the first witness called to the stand. James continually points the rich to the last day, the end times. And the final judgment. And so application for this misery, for this section, one thing I wondered is, is there a better way to make better use of what we do have now? Could we live more simply? Simple living is a big takeaway from this whole teaching. We live in a consumeristic culture. Could we live more simply? How many of our garments would be moth-eaten if we had to store them in first century conditions? They're, mo they're not moth-eaten simply because we have mothballs now because we have conditioned spaces in which to store our garments. What if we simplified our wardrobes and didn't build them back up? What if we gave some away? What if our surplus, a fraction of our surplus, could be exactly what the poor person needs? You know, one difference between us and them, though, there's a tension here. Clothing is so cheap in our culture. You know, if you're willing to go to the thrift store, if things from the thrift store fit you, I'm a little tall for a lot of things there. You know, for me personally, I'll, I'll buy a couple of things online that are super long and I'll buy a few extras so I don't have to go through this whole process of buying clothes again anytime soon. And so I've got clothes stored up I haven't worn yet, mainly because they're exactly the same as the ones I have now and I can just throw those on when these jeans get a hole in the knees. I guess the principle here, though, is restraint. It's simplicity. It's exerting self-control. Do I ever wait to buy something? Am I... Am I a little bit out of step with the rest of our culture? At least a little bit, maybe a lot out of step with the rest of our culture. Am I able to give things away? In our household, we're constantly going through and gathering things up and taking them into the thrift store. I don't know where it all comes from. God forbid I ever move and I see just how much stuff I really have. But um, every little bit counts. Hoarding versus saving. Really, hoarding versus saving is kind of what James is getting at here. 
You know, saving is not necessarily a bad thing. Randy Alcorn, his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, is a good read. If you've got some time on your hands looking for something to read, Randy Alcorn, he's a little bit extreme on some points, I think, but he will challenge your thinking. Here's what he says about hoarding versus saving. He says, long-term savings are a way of using years of plenty to prepare for years of lack, as Joseph did in the Old Testament. Yeah, the, the fool is the one who doesn't save anything up, according to the Proverbs. But Alcorn says, there are also many poor reasons for saving. Some of us save out of greed. Others because they're misers. Others out of fear. Anxiety about the future. By stockpiling money, they insulate themselves from God no longer depending on its provision and protection. Sure, we can't say saving money is biblical or saving money is unbiblical. It may be either, depending on the reasons and the alternatives. Saving is a means of not presuming on God to say, I won't save anything. I won't even work. I'll just let God take care of me. You're you're putting God to the test. You're presuming upon Him. Hoarding, on the other hand, is a means of replacing God. We wouldn't want to do that either. Saving can avoid presuming on others to assume responsibility for our future needs. Yeah, I'm just not going to do anything. And then when I'm in need, I'll just do a GoFundMe. I'll just have the other people in my home church meet my needs. Well, that money could have been used to meet somebody else's needs. Hoarding, he says, is a self-absorbed commitment to independence from others who could help us if we're in need, just as we can and should help others. Yeah. There might be times where we got to lean on other people. There might be times in the next couple of months where we're going to have to swallow our pride and receive from generous brothers and sisters who love us. That might be the best thing that could happen to you. I was thinking about the fact there's going to be a lot of need in the days and months to come. And I was thinking about the fact that, you know, Chris and I, we've got some money saved up. And in light of this passage, it made me wonder... Is now a time to dip into some of that savings to meet some needs that are going to come up. We need God's guidance on this. The answers are often more complicated than they look at first. But I hope that, hope that those of us that have been wise to save will also be givers during this time. Misery number one, hoarding riches has led to rotting riches Misery number two, James says, oppressing the workers has led to God hearing their cry. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or as it says in some of our translations, the Lord of heaven's armies. That's an Old Testament title for God, the Lord of Heaven's Armies, the Lord of Hosts, it's called sometimes. I like the Lord of Heaven's Armies a lot. It shows the might of God and just what that term really means. It's the heavenly hosts, the Lord of Hosts. They withheld the pay. Yeah, back then you didn't get a weekly paycheck. If you were poor, you'd hang out in the village square hoping that someone would pick you up as a day laborer. And then you'd go out and you'd negotiate a wage and then you'd get paid at the end of the day. But here's the thing. It was so easy to take advantage of these poor day laborers because the landowners had all the power. For example, you reach dusk and they would say, here's your half drachma. And you'd say, 
buddy, we said one drachma. And he would say, here's your half drachma. Take it or leave it. And good luck getting him to hire you the next day. They're not looking for somebody that's going to talk back. They're looking for somebody they can take advantage of. Or they'd say, yeah, I'll pay you your drachma. Just come back tomorrow morning. Well, there's problems with that. That means, first of all, you wouldn't have food for that night and your kids would be crying. Second of all, the next morning you had to go all the way out to that guy's farm to get paid instead of standing looking for a job. And then he'd offer you a half drachma to just stay and work and you might as well do it at that point. Scripture, on the other hand, built in protections for the poor. Deuteronomy 24, 14, Never take advantage of poor and destitute laborers, whether they are fellow Israelites or foreigners living in your towns. Yes, immigrant workers, even easier to take advantage of in our society. God says, no. You must pay them their wages each day before sunset because they're poor and they're counting on it. And if you don't, they might cry out to Yahweh against you and it would be counted against you as sin. Isn't that what James is quoting here? The money cries out against you that's in your pockets. And those who did the harvesting are crying out as well. There's a witness out there and there's witness in your own wallet. The prophets often confronted the rich for ignoring God's word and oppressing the poor. James could have focused here on the insensitivity involved, on the effect on these poor workers. But instead, he points to the one thing that no rich person wants to hear, that God sees, that God hears, and God is going to do something about it. God hears the cry of the poor. He does not shut his ear to the cry of the poor, and he says, you better not either. The poor man can't afford a lawyer. The poor man didn't go to Harvard with the judge. So he goes even further up the chain. He goes to the Lord of Heaven's armies, and he lodges his cry there. What's the application for us? Well, for one, if you own a business, don't be like the James 5 rich guys. Treat your workers good. It's probably going to be better for your business as well, by the way. There's some application. How do you treat those who are weaker than you? How do you treat those low-wage employees? Can we be kind at least? Can we have some empathy instead of treating them like dirt? Some of us are the low-wage employee, and you know much, how much it means to be treated well. What kind of tip are we leaving for that poor server? Perhaps we need to understand the impact our rampant consumerism is having on workers in third world and in the developing country. A friend of mine was telling me a story about a visit to Cambodia where he saw these box trucks pull up and workers for the day were loaded in like cattle. The door slammed shut and they drove off to the factory outside of the capital city. Later that day, he found himself driving by those very factories he saw the box trucks unloading those workers, and he thought, oh, how tragic. How could they treat people like that? And then he looked up at the sign on the factory, and he looked down at the logo on his pants, and he realized, there's a good chance my pants were made in that factory. We Americans, we do not realize we're so separated from the poor. The poor and the rich are segregated in ways they simply weren't in the first century. And even solutions that would have worked then like farmers leaving some, some grain for the poor to harvest. Who cares if the Nebraska cornfields have some grain at the corner? That doesn't help the poor of New York City. But can we at least realize that our desire to have more, more, more may be harming others?
awareness? Have we ever taken any action to research this? Have we ever done anything about it? Another application is if we are the oppressed low-wage employee, are we crying out to God like James's workers? The poor, you can get bitter and angry, and I cannot claim to understand where you're coming from. I've never been in as dire situation as some of the people who are watching this. I've been college poor, but I wasn't that bad. But as, as the poor and oppressed, you can get angry and bitter. Take that to God. Cry out to the Lord of heaven's armies and know that he hears your cry. And he will do something about it someday. The third misery James details, he says, you rich, your luxurious pleasure-seeking life has fattened your heart. You've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. This is probably the most intense section of James. I mean, this is the problem behind a lot of the other suffering in this book, so he's really letting them have it. Yeah, the words James uses here, luxury. Alec Mateer says, This luxury points to extravagant comfort, stressing the softness of luxury. It does not suggest dissolute living. It's not necessarily sinful. It's just extreme luxury, a life of luxury, soft living. You know what's scary is to realize is that for the majority of the world, every Western Christian lives a life of luxury. Even the poorer of us. He also says you've lived a life of wanton pleasure. That's not wanton pleasure. That's what happens at the all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet. Wanton pleasure. Now, this is wanton pleasure. This pleasure, Alec Matir again says... This suggests the breaking down of divine restraints, of going beyond pleasure to vice. Together, the words offer a picture of a life without self-denial. Not necessarily corrupt in every way, but certainly offering no resistance to sin where there is promise of comfort and enjoyment. And he says, you've done this in a day of slaughter. Fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. Yeah, what was the day of slaughter? Well, there would come a time often at a feast, a sheep-shearing feast, a harvest festival, where the rich consumed an immense amount of meat. Because once the animal was slaughtered, as much meat as possible needed to be eaten at once because the rest had to be preserved through salting. You couldn't throw it in your deep freeze and, and grill it up next month at July 4th. And so the rich, they would just eat and eat because they knew that that salted meat was not going to taste as good as this fresh meat. It's like when you're out and you're eating that steak, and you know, I should get a to-go box, but you're like, it's not going to be as good tomorrow coming out of the fridge. And you just eat, and you commit sin. Something happens in your heart where you just eat the rest of it. You know you shouldn't have eaten it. The rich would just keep eating and eating. Meanwhile, meat was generally unavailable to the poor, except during the festivals. A couple times a year, you'd get some meat, if that. Yeah, the sin in verse 5 it's not necessarily exploitation, but just extreme lavish luxury while others go hungry or in need. And what does it mean to fatten your heart? That's an interesting expression. Well, I think there's a multifaceted meaning here. For one, Blomberg points out fattening your heart can also mean fattening your midsection. 
your stomach. Literally, you're just getting fat. And that is a mark of your sinful eating. I'm sure none of us can relate to this, but James's readers could. But the Bible also talks about hardening the heart. You know, hardening the heart is where you say no to God so many times that you become spiritually insensitive, where you can't even hear his voice anymore. It's like you've blown out your spiritual eardrums because there's a layer of callus around your heart. And wouldn't a layer of callus and a layer of fat on your heart sort of amount to the same conclusion? And of course, the fat one is the one who gets picked first for the knife. You know, the farmer just keeps bringing out more and more slop, and the pig is like, I must have hit the lottery or something. I am the most honored pig in the world. This is my lucky day. I've got no care in the world. All that I can eat buffet. Turns out it's not. That careless and carefree pig does not see just on the other side of that kitchen door the knife at the chopping block waiting for that day. Unlucky Tuesday. Only the thin beast is safe in that day, and that's how James sees the rich and the poor here in this passage. Yeah, wealth dulls our spiritual senses. It dulls our sense of urgency. It can take someone who's red hot for God and cool them off to someone who's doing it as their duty, someone who remembers what it used to be like to be radical for God. Believers are looking forward to an invitation to a different feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's going to be a good feast. And fourth and finally, James says, condemning the innocent has led to the death of the innocent. You've condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Who's the innocent man? The innocent man refers to all believers who are considered righteous because of their relationship with Christ. That's the definition here. I think this is referring to anybody that has a relationship with God. You've received a God-given innocence, a God-given righteousness because of what Christ did. Ultimately, you know, these believers in James's day, if they went to their death, they would only be walking in the footsteps of their master, the ultimate innocent man, the only one ever innocent upon his own merit. And he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was killed by the rich. The rich in James's day would be like, what do you mean murder? I've never killed anybody. Yeah, well, Blomberg points out the murder here is most likely judicial in the courts. The wealthy landowners would take smaller, poorer, indebted farmers to court, stripping them of their land and thus their source of income, and then hiring them back to work on their former property as sharecroppers. If you've ever read Grapes of Wrath, that's exactly what that book is about. With dirt poor wages, unpaid debts might then lead their new landlords to throw them into debtor's prison, where they could rot for the rest of their lives. In the Jewish world, to deprive a person of their support was the same as murdering them. Yeah, those who had wealth and power on their side were the ones who won in court, not the ones who had justice on their side. And so by taking actions that in their mind was just simply giving people what was coming to them, just enforcing the law. They were just following the laws of the land. In reality, they were condemning and as a result, putting to death the innocent man. And God saw, God saw. 
James continually points them to the eye of God watching over all of this. Application for us. The first thing we need to say is you need to see the opportunity you have if you are a person living in America. You are a person of wealth, and if you don't have wealth, there's a decent chance you're going to have some wealth. You know, a lot of times we, we, we sit under passages like this, and we hear the word taught, and we feel guilty, and that is not the point. The point is not that we should feel guilty. The point is that we should see the opportunity here, that God is trying to open your eyes to what he has given you, to the opportunity to do something about a world that is in desperate need. Jesus said, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters, you've done for me. Whatever you haven't done, you've done against me, he says to the rich. But whatever you have done, even the littlest thing, that's a great place to start. Is there anything you can do? How do you take advantage of the opportunity with the resources that God has given you? To the one who has been given much, much is expected, God says. And you have been given much. See the opportunity there. Crawl out from under the guilt. Embrace the grace of God and ask God, what do you want me to do, Lord? A second application is you need to get some perspective. We go around feeling sorry for ourselves. We feel like we're broke. Thinking you're poor instead of rich is one of the worst things you can do for your generosity. For one, it's not even real, probably. You know, people do this. You look at lists of the 20th wealthiest people in America. For example, in 2018, the wealthiest man in America, Jeff Bezos, owner and CEO of Amazon, gave $131 million away. But you know what percentage that was of his wealth? 0.1% of his $160 billion that he's worth. Number two was Bill Gates, who gave away $2.5 billion. You know what percentage that was of his wealth? 2.6%. He kept the other 97.4%. And thank God he did, because he's actually putting a lot of these other rich guys to shame with his giving. If you add up to top 20, even including Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, who give 2.6 and 3.9%, the average given is still less than 1% of their net worth in a year. And we think, what are you doing with $159 billion that you can't give a little bit more of that away? But you know what? If we zoom the lens out, the rest of the world is looking at you saying, what are you doing with all that money? I make a dollar a day. You make 10, 20, $40 an hour. What are you doing with all of that money? You know, we, we talk about the hardships in our lives. We're like, I went to Target and they were out of toilet paper. And the rest of the world's like, what's toilet paper? Oh, I think I saw that once in a picture. We just use our left hand here. We're like, I went to the store. What's a store? It's a giant acre filled with shelves of food. What? You have acres of shelves of food? And you can get out of there for the cost of three hours of work? 
I work all day just to feed my family, and even that's not enough. Gratitude. The poor, if they heard us talking about our first world problems, we'd be ashamed of ourselves. They heard us complain about our lives. We should be grateful that I'm in a warm room right now that's dry, that I'm wearing clothing, and I have other clothes I can put on. I can turn a, 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 little, a little circle and water starts coming out of it. Clean water that I can drink. We should be so grateful for what we do have. We're swimming in blessings. A poor person would feel like a king if they could live in your life for a day, most likely. Poor person from another country. Part of our perspective is we need to remember what we talked about so many times. Our, our Finding Peace series back in the fall, that happiness does not come from wealth. It comes from the relational side of life and spending our money in ways that help others. It might help to do some reading on this topic. Ron Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, is a classic. Randy Alcorn's book I mentioned already, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, is a classic. One I read recently, by Stevenson called A Just Mercy. It was recently made into a movie as well. Really helps tune in to the plight of the poor in our own prison system and the unfairness of our prison system. Read that book if you want to have your perspective changed. I asked my wife about this. My wife always reads books about poor people. And I remember asking her one time, I would say, why do you do that? That's so depressing. I've come to realize what a wicked statement that is. Why do you try to open your eyes to the eyes of the poor at all? Well, one reason is because God never shuts his ears to the cries of the poor. He hears all the children crying themselves to sleep, even tonight. He knows them by name. He knit them together in their mother's womb. This is one thing we can do. We can at least journey there through literature, and that may move our hearts. That Action starts with convincing the mind. That is where it must begin. We must get convinced at the mind if we're going to get convinced in our actions. My wife, two books she suggested. She says these are classics. One, this is called There Are No Children Here, about two boys growing up in the Chicago projects by Kotlowitz. Another classic by Dave Eggers called What is the What? It's the story of the lost boys of Sudan coming through that country to America. I'm sure there's others we could recommend to one another who've, who've read a lot of books on this subject. Embrace simple living. One of the things I love about this fellowship is that we, we love simple living. I remember first coming around to home church and seeing grown men with actual careers pulling up in what looked like a college car. And it was surprising to me, but it also made me think, that's really cool that they didn't graduate from college and just go out and take out a big car loan and go way into debt. That they're resisting the spending of their peers. Are there any steps, God, that we can take towards simple living? One book that really made an impact on me was Richard Swenson's book, Overload Syndrome. It's a real easy read, a fun read, a practical read, and he really exposes the overload that we have in our culture. 
There's also a book called Affluenza, written by DeGraff and a number of others on their team. It's also, Affluenza is also a TV series. I think it's on PBS. But that'll be some motivation for simple living. We need to think about how can I become a more generous person? Could my surplus, a portion of it, fill someone else's entire deficit? This might be a good topic for discussion amongst one another. And finally, whether you're rich or poor, you need to receive the true riches if you have not done so already. You see, we all come into this world spiritually poor. And it's only by a free gift of God that we can receive the true riches. As 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Jesus Christ wants to make you rich. And you can do that right now. You can, t- you can admit your sins to him. Admit, I don't have a leg to stand on spiritually. I can't make up for what I've done, Lord. And you can receive the gift of God. You can receive the joy that cannot come from riches, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 6. You can receive the guarantee of eternal life. And you can receive the power of God to help you to start to make changes in your finances. He wants to change you from inside out to make you a self-controlled and generous person. That's the offer that Jesus Christ is making to you. He gave up everything so you could have his riches. And then he wants to teach you how you can make yourself nothing so you can be the servant of all. Let's pray. Lord God, we admit we've lived soft, luxurious lives, Lord. We're consumers, living in a consumer society, frantic about consuming. We don't realize how good we've got it, Lord. And yet, God, there's grace for this. You love us. You saw all this beforehand. If we belong to you, you forgave us of these before we even committed these sins. Lord, I pray you would show us the way forward into simple living. I pray you would adjust our perspective so that we can express the gratitude to you that matches the reality of our situation. I pray, God, for those of us listening in, those of us watching, who have never received the riches of Jesus Christ, I pray they would see the opportunities before them and the opportunity before them to perceive the true riches, and I pray they would do so. We we pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.